All right, so what does it look like to be spiritual? I mean, how do you tell, how do you identify a truly spiritual person? You know, spirituality is, is all the rage. According to recent reports, is, as much as 70% of millennials identify themselves as what's known as SBNR. Spiritual, but not religious. Spiritual, but not religious. But it's not just millennials. Even this week, I was uh, eating lunch, and the server was in her 50s, and we got into a conversation, and she was telling me about this book she had read that had significantly impacted her life. And I asked her about it, and she said, well, it's not a religious book. I mean, who would want to read one of those? Not a religious book, but it's a spiritual book, is how she described it. And I confess there's a part of me that just thought, oh, no, here we go again. Um, It's the conversation with the server or the guy in the plane. When they hear I'm a pastor, uh, they take that as an invitation and to launch into an explanation of how they're spiritual but not religious. And they talk about it as if it's a bold new insight, a daring step of rebellion against the religious status quo. Before I know it, I'm hearing about how they find God in the sunsets and quiet strolls along the beach. Now, there's a certain appeal to spirituality without religion. You know, religion has all the encrustations of doctrines and institutions that have hardened over time. Spirituality, well, spirituality sheds all of that. It seems far less obnoxious, far less judgmental. It's what the, that great modern prophet John Lennon sung of in Imagine. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. And no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us. And the world will be as one. But is that all that spirituality is about? Crystals and and sunset strolls and some vague notions of universal oneness. Is it some ethereal mystical plane that we pursue in the inner recesses of our own soul? I mean, what does it mean to be truly spiritual? And how, as Christians, does God intend us to exercise our spirituality within the body together? Well, these are exactly the kind of questions that Paul addresses in the next chapters as we continue in our study through the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to open it up, turn to 1 Corinthians. We're going to be covering chapters 12 through 14. Those three chapters, there, 12 to 14. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided in the seat back before you, you can find it. On page 958, page 958. Well, if you're just joining us, we're in week 11 of this 13-week study through the fascinating letter that the Apostle Paul has written to this young and struggling church in Corinth. 
And in the past two weeks, Paul's really been addressing the issues they face corporately when they gather. He looked and addressed their gendered relationships together um, with that topic of head coverings, the beginning of chapter 11. Then he talked about the Lord's Supper and how their practice of the supper had been so divisive. You know, the, the wealthy had their own menus and fine wine, whereas the rich, I'm rather as the poor, were going in want and without. And this morning he turns to a third issue. He turns to this topic of spiritual gifts, a topic that in many respects is no less controversial today than it would have been in Paul's day, a topic that covers, again, chapters 12 through 14. And those three chapters, the fact that he addresses so much time to it clearly uh, for us expresses uh, the depth of and speaks to the depth of the problem and its importance for the body. So time just won't permit me uh, to read all three chapters, that might be, it would be a great thing to do. It was one of the th- reasons why I give you that handing preaching card, that schedule. You can be reading through in preparation for the services. I certainly won't have time to answer every question you might have on the spiritual gifts. But what I can do, and what I think is going to be helpful for us, is before we sort of dive in to give you a bit of a user's guide, a bit of an overview to 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. So if you just look down at the text there, 1 Corinthians 12, notice how he begins in verse 1. He says to them, now concerning spiritual gifts... And if you're using one of, one of the ESV or the Bible provided in the, in the seat back there, you're going to notice the footnote concerning spiritual gifts or concerning spiritual persons. And then if you flip from the beginning there in chapter 12 to the very end, chapter 14, the end of the section, verse 37, Paul closes that section by writing, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual. It's that same expression, sort of a spiritual person. Those bookends highlight Paul's concern throughout the chapters. And the burning question that Paul's addressing for them is, is who is truly spiritual? How do you recognize the spiritual ones among you? Because in antiquity, proof that you were sort of in cohorts, uh, rather cahoots with one of the, with one of the gods, was to, that was to be evidenced in Special spiritual endowments and ecstatic utterances and and frenzied behavior. And as you read through these chapters, this, this topic of tongues comes up a good 21 times in chapters 12 to 14. It's clearly... the that tongues are the issue occupying Paul's mind. Now, when I say speaking in tongues, I'm not talking about sort of mere gibberish or gobbledygook. Tongues in the Bible are actually distinct foreign languages, and someone who is gifted with the gift of tongues was able spontaneously to speak in that language such that folks who knew that language could understand that language. And it'd be sort of like I was preaching, all of a sudden I started preaching in Swahili. In case you all knew Swahili, that's, that's the idea. It's not, just, it's not just gibberish. And it appears that the Corinthians were elevating the spiritual gift of tongues over all other gifts that God had given to the church. The ecstatic nature of it made it appear like more supernatural. It gathered attention. It elevated the one who had the gift almost to a sort of celebrity status. And it became a cause for spiritual exaltation, sort of a spiritual one-upsmanship within the body. And once again, what we're finding is that the Corinthian values are seeping into the church. 
Right? The problem is not that there is a church in Corinth, but there is too much of Corinth in the church. You guys are catching on. Exactly. Too much of Corinth in the church. So Paul writes chapter 12, verses 1 to 11, and he says there isn't just one spiritual gift, but many spiritual gifts that God has apportioned to each Christian. Right? Nobody's left out. And nobody is unimportant. And Paul uses that image of the body in chapter 12, verses 12 to 26, to show the mutuality and the interdependency of the gifts. Just as the body needs working hands and it needs working feet and and eyes and so forth, so the church body needs the diversity of spiritual gifts if it is to function properly. Now, chapter 13, we get there. Chapter 13 feels like a digression. Paul knew that at some point we'd have weddings and we'd need some poetic verses to use, so he he penned chapter 13. But that's actually not at all how it works. Chapter 13 is critical to his argument. It has a purpose. And he's saying in chapter 13 that love is not so much a gift, but love is meant to be that controlling principle in the exercise of any spiritual gift. Without love, these spiritual endowments merely become monuments to our own self-exaltation. Love is what reminds us that the gifts are not a measure of God's regard for me personally, but the gift I receive is a reminder of God's regard for the body corporately. He's gifted, and in love, I'm to use that gift for the benefit of the body. So he calls them, 14.1, to pursue love and to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Right, with that established, he's returning to sort of what's spiritual. And in 14, 1 to 20, he highlights not the breadth of gifts given to all, but he actually zeroes in, he hones in, particularly on the gifts that edify the body. And he places a priority on those gifts that are intelligible, like prophecy, versus those that are not, like tongues. So he says in 14.9, Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. And then he's going to close the section in 14.26 to 40 by calling the body when they gather to gather together in an orderly fashion, whether it's prophecy or preaching or tongues, so that, verse 31, all may learn and be encouraged. So that's sort of the the overview. And I think Paul's main point is that every Christian is given a gift to be exercised in love for the edification of the body. Chapters 12 to 14, despite all the questions sometimes they raise, the actual point, it's not that hard to discern as you just read through it. Every Christian is given a gift to be exercised in love for the edification of the body. Okay, so what do these verses then tell us about genuine spirituality? Is it about, you know, long walks in the woods or personal retreats, hours of meditation? You know, what is it? Well, point one, first, genuine spirituality requires the Holy Spirit. That's the first thing I want us to see. Genuine spirituality requires the Holy Spirit. Look down with me to chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. 
Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. All right, at first glance, these verses seem somewhat confusing. I mean, were there really Corinthian congregants that were yelling in the middle of the service, Jesus is accursed? I don't think that's what's happening. I think Paul's laying out sort of the three religious experiences of of three different groups. You've got the pagan experience that would have been most of these Corinthians. You know, their background, they had been led astray to mute idols. But you have the Jewish experience of a few and some Jews who would have remained in, been in Corinth, who had not become Christians, and they would have been those who rejected Jesus, and because he was crucified, would say, Jesus is accursed. He is accursed. He's literally anathema. But then you'd have the Christian experience of those who made the great Christian confession, Jesus is Lord, and they made that confession, what does he say? By the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Spirit. And Paul's point in highlighting that is that genuine Spiritual, spiritually people, genuine spiritual people, they possess the Holy Spirit. Genuinely spiritual people, they possess the Holy Spirit. Which means any spirituality apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, Paul's just saying that's actually not genuine spirituality. Any spirituality apart from relation with Christ is not genuine spirituality. And I don't say that in order to be offensive. I recognize at one level we're all spiritual. We have a sense of God's existence and awareness of his invisible attributes, whether it's the grandeur of nature or the untold wonders of the universe. We all, we all have a sense of that. But private spirituality alone doesn't help us better understand the world or the God who made it, or how we're to live within that world. For that, we need something more than a sort of a custom build-it-yourself spirituality. And Paul says that spirituality starts by confessing Jesus is Lord. Which means if you've come this morning and you're not a believer, we love that you're here. We're happy that you're here. We want you to feel welcome here. And Paul's first encouragement to you is that if you desire to be a genuine spiritual person, that spirituality begins by confessing Jesus as Lord, by recognizing that God has made you. He's made this world. He's made you. He's made you to be in relationship with him. But because you have chosen your ways over God ways, you know what the Bible just refers to as sin, because you've done that and God is just, he punishes sin, which means all of us fall under his judgment. And yet in his kindness, God provided his own son. And that son came down and took upon flesh. He lived the life that you and I can and would never live. And he died a death as a sacrifice, a substitute for sinners. So that all who would look to that death and see in the resurrection of Christ, the defeat of sin and death, they cry out, Jesus is Lord. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. They can be saved of their sins. You can be saved of your sins. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. What does Paul say in Romans 10? You will be saved. You will be saved. If you come as a non-Christian, that is where the Bible begins. That's where spirituality begins, by confessing that Jesus is Lord. But if you're a Christian, Paul wants you to see his point is that all Christians have the spirit. 
It's not just an elite few that possess the Spirit. All are spiritual, not just those who have conspicuous public gifts like the gift of tongues that he's addressing in these chapters. And one of the evidences of this is that if you possess the Spirit, you've been given a gift of the Spirit. That's what he says in verses 4 to 11 of chapter 12. Look specifically down at verse 7. To each, he says, right? To each, not just to the elite spiritual few, but to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Verse 11. All these gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Just a few lessons from this. First, if you're a Christian, this is saying God has given you a gift. God has given you a gift. You may not realize it. You may not be deploying that gift, but God has gifted you. God doesn't save people into his family without then equipping them for service within the family. You know, when it comes to the spirit, it's not that some get sort of the value meal, whereas other get sort of the supersized meal. You know, there's not sort of a varsity class and a JV class when it comes to the spirit. In verses 8 to 10, Paul goes on and he goes on to describe some of these gifts. He describes wisdom and knowledge, faith and healing and miracles. And notice in the list, where does he put tongues? He puts tongues at the very bottom as if to make a point to those who might be prone to elevate that gift over all others. Now, I think how we understand these various gifts that Paul lays out here, that's often caused a good deal of confusion. So I think I may have mentioned to you in the past that when my wife and I moved initially to the Baltimore area many years ago, we were looking to get established in a church. We found a Bible church. We were serving there, but we didn't know exactly how to get formally involved. And they gave us one of those spiritual gift inventories. And they said, here, fill this out. You know, we'll grade it, and then we'll tell you where you're to serve. And we thought, great. Wonderful, okay, we'll do that. Spent a lot of time going through it, turned it in, waited weeks, got it back, came in the mail, all excited, all right, what's my spiritual gift? How can I, how can I serve? And I opened it up. And my gift was discerning spirits. That was my gift from chapter 12, verse 10, discerning spirits. I had no idea what to do with that. What kind of spirits? Good spirits, bad spirits, human spirits, angelic spirits. I had no clue. I just remember how dejected and confused I felt. Well, I think one of the things we see is that the challenge sometimes with inventories like that is it assumes all the gifts are exhaustive. But I think a second lesson we learn is, actually, I don't think there's a single exhaustive list of the spiritual gifts in the New Testament. So if you look at verses 8 to 10, that list in 12, 8 to 10 doesn't align perfectly with the list In chapter 12, verse 28, that list includes apostles and helping gifts and administrative gifts. And then if you look at the spiritual gift list in Romans 12, verses 6 to 8, it includes different things like service and giving and leadership and mercy ministry. And then Ephesians 4, that list includes things like evangelists and pastors. My point is, I don't think there's any one list that is exhaustive. The lists are more like a sampling of gifts that God gives, not a comprehensive summary. Which means you shouldn't feel like you've missed your calling if you feel like God has equipped you to serve in a particular way, but you don't see it in one of these lists. 
don't think you've missed it. Don't think you have to force your service into something mentioned here. So I think, you know, I think working in nursery is a spiritual gift. And I'm sure Ben Evans would agree. I think working with youth, being able to communicate with youth, right, that could be a spiritual gift. It's not on one of these lists. I mean, they didn't really have youth ministries, we think about it. Point is, again, it's just not meant to be exhaustive. Well, what if I don't know what my gift is? Well, don't fret if you don't know what it is. You know, ask around, see where there is need in the body, and then just start serving. For that's so often how gifts are discovered. They're discovered in service as we serve. I think there's a third lesson as well. Notice these gifts are given, they're given by God. By God. They're apportioned to each one, 1 Corinthians 12, 11, as he wills. 1 Corinthians 12, 18, God arranges the members of the body with their gifts as he chose. Verse 12, 24, but God, but God has so composed the body. God has a plan, and he has a plan for each one of us. He has a purpose, and he has equipped us for that purpose. God hasn't left anybody out. He's not going to send you out without equipping you to serve, which means that spiritual gifts reveal more of God's grace to us than some gracious condition in us. Stop and think about that for a moment. Because I think this is what the Corinthians misunderstood. Any spiritual gift we might have that comes from God reveals God's grace to us. Not some gracious condition that we have resurrected within us. So perhaps you wish that you had a different gift. Well, you need to trust that your Heavenly Father has equipped you and gifted you just as he desired. Just as is best for you and for the body. But maybe, maybe you'd actually take some sort of secret pride in your gift. Maybe you recognize one of the ways God has gifted you is it's a more public way. And others see it and they recognize it and, and they honor it. Well, if gifts reveal more of God's grace to us than some gracious condition in us, right? there's no room for boasting. No room for taking pride in that gift. No room to elevate our gift at the expense of the others or the neglect of others. And again, it seems like that was exactly the fault these Corinthians had fallen into. Notice how Paul says in verse 29, Are all apostles, are all prophets, do all speak in tongues? They valued that tongue gift at the expense of others, such that nobody felt honored in the body if they didn't have that one thing. Which leads us to a fourth lesson. And that is that gifts are given to promote the unity of the body. As you read through chapter 12, that's what you see. They're given to promote the unity of the body. 12.7. To each is given a manifestation of the spirit. Why? Well, it has a purpose. For the common good. For the common good of the body. 12.24. But God has so composed the body, distributing gifts as he has. Why? That there may be no division in the body. Which is why in the second half of chapter 12, Paul turns to that image of a human body. And he wants, he uses that so that they will value all the members of the body that God has gifted to the church. Now as a kid, I don't know if you had one of these. I had one of those Mr. Potato Heads. If you remember those little toys and you sort of got this 
fat little torso, and you've got all the little pieces. You've got the arms and hands, and you've got noses and ears and funny hats and stuff like that. And you're, you know, you've got to put a Mr. Potato Head together. Well, just imagine that, that you have a Mr. Potato Head, and it's all mouths. That's all it is. Just a whole bunch of mouths, because that's what you value. You value the mouth. And so it's got a whole bunch of mouths. Now, other than being a little spooky, and it look a little funny as a Mr. Potato Head, that Mr. Potato Head could do a whole lot of speaking, There'd be a whole lot of noise, but without feet or without arms, it can't accomplish anything. It can't do anything. And Paul's point is that the members of the body can't function properly when they're alone or when parts of the body are segregated, separated from the others. Put another way, diversity is not an accidental attribute of the body. A church's diversity is not some accidental attribute of the body. It's of the very essence of the body to possess diverse parts. Which is just another reason why it's not wise to divide gatherings on the basis of age or musical style or shared interests. You do that and you immediately start separating the members. You start dividing the body from the various gifts that God means to be a blessing to one another. Paul wants them to see that and he wants them to see it in part by showing them, he says, still, the end of verse 31, still a more excellent way. And that's the way of love. And that brings us really to our second observation about genuine spirituality. And this is point two. It's just chapter 13, point two. Genuine spirituality is exercised in love. Very simple idea. Genuine spirituality is exercised in love. Picking up chapter 13, verse one. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong. Or a clanging symbol. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. I'll just stop there. Paul here is speaking and he's, he's referring to many of these spiritual gifts, but Paul's saying that the absence of love turns these gifts that are meant to glorify God into gifts that only magnify self. But positively, he says, right, love is patient and kind, verse 4. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Paul's saying love is the antidote to self-centered spirituality. And unlike tongues or prophecy or knowledge, these gifts that would have been prized by the Corinthians, love never ends. There will come a day where you don't need those gifts but love will persist with God's people forever. I mean, what will heaven be but the unquenchable love of the father for his bride and the bride for his heavenly father? Heaven will be dominated by love, love that is perfect and pure. But hell? It's interesting, Dostoevsky described hell as the suffering of being unable to love. 
That suffering of being unable to love. Friends, love is the very first fruit of the Spirit. It's the mortar that holds the bricks of Christian community together. Which means showing love to one another is vastly more important than exercising any spiritual gift. Showing love to one another in this body becomes vastly more important than any of the exercise of your own spiritual gifts. So if you desire to build up the body, the first question you should be asking is, is not necessarily what's my spiritual gift and spending countless hours trying to figure that out, but not that those aren't useful, but it's just don't ask that question. Just ask, how am I loving the body? How am I loving the body? How am I loving those right now? That's the pressing question that Paul pushes upon us. First John 3, 10 and 11 reminds us that love, love is how we evidence that we are children of God. John 13, 34 and 35, what did Jesus say? Well, he reminds us that how we love one another is actually the most powerful evangelistic witness and tool that we have. This gathering, a gathering marked by love, is one of the greatest evangelistic tools that a church possesses. Now, my former pastor used to love to quote the Puritans, but I just, I'm reading this and I, I can't help but think of 80s music. You've learned that about me. So maybe you remember Lenny, Lenny Kravitz, right? What did he say? Let love rule, right? That's, that's the response of the Christian. We are to let love rule. Does love rule in your own life? Would your closest friends and family members say that your life is marked and ruled by this kind of love? Love that is sacrificial and patient, kind and forbearing. Love that is steadfast and unwavering. Love that is, that is truthful, that is hopeful. Look at yourself before the mirror of love. Do you see but a dim reflection or do you see a vibrant resemblance in your own life of the love that Paul talks about here? Friends, pray for this kind of love. Meditate upon these verses. Memorize them. Reflect upon these attributes. Pray that you and we as a body would be increasingly marked out by this kind of love. For more than any gift, more than money or land or parking or excellent preaching, we must be a loving body or we will not long be a body at all. So Paul says, pursue love. And, 14.1, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Now that mention of prophecy sort of throws our minds in a circle for a minute. And if you remember back from 1 Corinthians 11, you know, I defined prophecy as uh, it's not sort of the infallible speech of the Old Testament prophets, and it's not just preaching. It seems to be that when Paul speaks of prophecy here, he's speaking to the more informal, immediate, unpremeditated insights into the meaning and the application of Scripture, something that both men and women are meant to do, whether or not it's in an ABF, perhaps, or in a life group, or in some other setting. Well, why does... Paul highlight prophecy. Well, that gets to our, our third thing I want us to see. Point three, genuine 
spirituality seeks the edification of others. Genuine spirituality seeks the edification of others. Edification, not self-exaltation. That's Paul's primary concern in chapter 14. Right in chapter 14, 1 to 25, what Paul does, he contrasts speaking in tongues, which they all seem to esteem so highly, with prophecy. And again, we know from verses 10 and 11 of chapter 14, when Paul speaks of tongues, again, he's not referring to the ability to speak in some sort of private prayer language, but to speak in the recognized language of another people. The problem with tongues, Paul says, looking back to verse 2, is that no one in Corinth understands the foreign tongue. It does no good for the person inside the church or the Greek-speaking person who comes into the church if they're speaking in a different language. Verse 23, Paul says, If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? Of course they will. No one understands. They look out of their minds. On the other hand, he says, verse 3, The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Verse 4, the one who prophesies, what? The one who prophesies builds up the church, he says. Verse 5, again, Paul shows a preference for prophecy so that, why? So that the church may be built up, verse 5. He knows the Corinthians are eager For gifts of the Spirit. So which gifts of the Spirit should they pursue? Which gifts of the Spirit should you pursue? He says, chapter 14, verse 12, strive to excel in those gifts that what? That build up the church. You see the same in verse 17. In verse 26, let all things be done for building up. I wonder if that's how you think about the pursuit of spiritual gifts. So often I think we desire those gifts that we value or those gifts that we think others around us value. We don't desire the gift that may be most needed. And I think that simply reveals how often we prioritize our own personal self-interest over the corporate needs of the body. In other words, it's the, it's the individualism that is so marked Corinth that can so mark us that's causing problems in the body. It's how we make service about ourselves and not about love for others. But Paul's saying, strive and seek after those gifts that build up the body. So the picture in Scripture is not a bunch of Christians saying, you know, my gift is teaching, and until I have an opportunity to teach, you know, I'm going to sit on the sidelines. I know we may be a man down in nursery, or we may need some more parking attendance, but you know... Like kids playing traffic cop, that's really not my thing. And just to be clear, we are actually down some men and women in nursery. So if you're interested, Good Friday, we could use a few folks. Just a plug. Good Friday, we could use a few folks. If the purpose of God's gift is service and not self-aggrandizement, right? the church then is not to bend itself to my ministry, Rather, I'm to bend myself to the church's ministry needs. Right? That's the attitude of love that God is calling them to have and call us to have. If our concern is to edify others when the body meets, 
Okay, what should that tell us then about how we gather together, about what our gathering should look like? Well, Paul discusses this. And the first thing he says to them is what's edifying when the body gathers is that which places a priority on word-related gifts. So first, what's edifying is that which places a priority on the word-related gifts. Now, whenever you read those gifts lists in Scripture, one of the things you find is those word-related gifts always begin the list. Ephesians 2.20 says the church is built not on the foundation of healings and miracles, but upon the apostles and the prophets, right? It's their teaching. This is Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 14. He's emphasizing the priority of prophecy over tongues because, verse 3, the one who prophesies speaks to the people for their upbuilding, right? For their encouragement, for their consolation. Thus, whether God's word comes as it came to his people sort of immediately through an apostle or immediately to us, right? Through expositional preaching, the preaching of God's word, it's the It's the word that is meant to exercise that dominant role in the life of the church. It's one of the reasons why we spend more time in our gathering on the sermon than in private meditation or reflection. Contrary to what you think, it's not because I actually like to hear myself speak. That's not why we spend the time that we do on the sermon. It's because God has placed a priority on those word gifts when the body gathers. So when we're at home, when we're discipling, when we're in a small group, other gifts can be central and they will be central. But particularly when the body gathers, he says, these gifts, these word related gifts are to be central. But he says, a second thing that you need to know about building up, about edifying is what's edifying is that which engages the mind. He says, what's edifying is that which engages the mind. Look down chapter 14, verses 14 and 15. Paul says, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Friends, notice the stress Paul places upon the mind in worship. We don't merely worship With the mind, but we can't worship without it. It matters what we pray. Pray is not merely being, or prayer is not merely being carried away into some ecstatic experience, into some higher place. It's not emptying our minds through meditation. Prayer is filling our minds. I mean, how often do you pray with your Bibles open? Do you you feed your prayers through the truth of God's word? God means when you pray And increasingly, we mean when we be praying here before you to be filling you with God's word, leading you in God's word. It's that which engages the mind. And it's the same with music, right? It matters what we sing. Paul talks about that. So often, we can talk about how music made me feel. Did it create a worshipful experience? Was it dynamic? Did I feel moved? But if we start amening or clapping just because of how a song makes us feel, whether or not it's a guitar rift or a pipe organ, we're worshiping more like pagans than Christians. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't engage emotionally with music. Not at all. God intends us to engage emotionally. That's part of what makes music so powerful. But that's also what can make it so dangerous. 
for we don't want to confuse sensuous emotion with spiritual emotion. We have to remember how easily worship and music in worship can just turn into the worship of music. You know, instrumentation, you had that in the temple when the Jews gathered, but you didn't have any when the early Christians gathered. There was no instrumentation in their meetings. In other words, all this, this can be great, but we don't need all this to sing to God. We don't need all of it to engage our minds. Emotion should be embraced so long as it's principally fueled not by a cool chord chart, but by the truths of what we sing. It doesn't mean we shouldn't strive for excellent music. It doesn't mean we can't have drums or amplification. But it does mean that all of this is meant to be in the service of the word. Which means if we can't hear the words because it's too loud, well then it doesn't serve us well. And it means if we're not singing those words too, it means we're not worshiping. With our prayers and with our songs, the mind through the scriptures must be engaged. But he says a third thing. What's, what's edifying is also what's orderly. And that's what Paul addresses in verses 26 of, of chapter 14 through verses 40. He says, when you come together, 26, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. And he goes on with some instructions on prophecy. And then he says in verse 31, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. Verse 33, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And then he closes in verse 40. But all things should be done decently and in order. Well, friends, that concern for order is why our services are structured as they are. You know, realize when I plan these services, I don't sort of come to church on Tuesday and say, okay, like I'm going to go to a blank whiteboard. What do we want to do at church today? Let me, you know, it'd be fun to finger paint. Let me, let's just put that into the order of service. It's fun to do some drama, some skits. Let's put that in. I don't come to a blank whiteboard when we plan the services. God has actually revealed to us as he always has in his word, how he is to be worshiped. He's revealed to us that whiteboard already has instructions on it that we are called to follow. If you remember when Lig and Duncan was here earlier in the fall and we were talked in that, that corporate ABF, Lig said, yeah, what does is, what is God call us to when we gather? Well, we, we sing the word, we read the word, we pray the word, we hear the word preached, and we see the word in the Lord's Supper and in baptism. So to require people to do things that God has not required by adding elements to a service, that's actually not, that's really not fun. That's not liberating. That's slavery. That's saying, in order for you to worship God, you've got to do what God has not commanded. That's a dangerous place to put ourselves. It's why we have something as simple as an order of service, and we stick with it. It's, it's the concern that we don't have confusion, but order and peace and obedience. It protects us in our obedience. Now, if you know these verses, Paul also has something to say about the order of the service as it relates to women, too. And uh, there's that what can appear like this confusing command in chapter 14, verse 34, that women should keep silent in churches, which is confusing because just 
in chapter 11, Paul says he intends them to pray and to prophesy. So is Paul confused? I think this is, once again, in your Bible, context is always king. And the context here is on prophesying. Paul's merely saying that when it comes to the weighing and the judging and the evaluating of prophecies in the public gathering, that's not when women are to speak. That's when sort of the elders, pastors are meant to do that weighing and judging and evaluating. I think that's all Paul means. It doesn't mean that they can't pray. It doesn't mean they can't prophesy, share encouraging words. That's not what Paul's getting at. But it does beg one final question. I can't dodge it. I shouldn't dodge it before we go. And that's this. How are we to understand some of the experience of these supernatural gifts, do they apply to us today? Should we expect to see some of these gifts of miracles or healing or tongues? Should we expect them within our own gathering? Well, I would just suggest to you that in the scriptures, extraordinary gifts, well, they're just that. They're extraordinary. They're unusual in the life of God's people. When you read through the Old Testament, you tend to have You tend to have such gifts and the eruptions of such unique gifts during those unique redemptive historical periods in the life of God's people. Whether it's the exodus or whether it's entering into the promised land, such signs seem to confirm and to establish God's relationship with his people. Again, especially during those great transitional periods. And it's really no different in the New Testament with Jesus or the apostles and acts, you see that same pattern. Signs and wonders attest to and confirm the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. Right? They are the ones, Ephesians 2.20, who laid that concrete foundation. And yet, once that foundation has settled, so largely did the signs that accompanied it. So I think it's interesting when you note the movement in the New Testament from Acts to the letters in the New Testament church, letters like the pastoral epistles, which are meant to regulate post-apostolic church life. What does Paul tell Timothy? Well, he doesn't tell Timothy to, to confirm the message of Christ by extraordinary signs and miracles. He simply says, no, be prepared. Go preach the word in season and out of season. Preach the word. There seems to be a shift from the immediacy of tongues to the teaching of apostolic doctrine. So I tend to think that where the gospel has not gone forth before, where the gospel has not gone forth, where it's penetrating new areas, you often do get some attestation of that message with signs or unusual gifts. And you may well see them. But where the gospel has gone forth before, it seems less likely And it seems we shouldn't expect it in the same way. That doesn't mean the Spirit won't work in those ways. And I have no interest in saying what the Spirit can't do. That's not a good thing for any of us to ever do. Of course, the Spirit can do some of these things. And he may well do it. But that's a different thing than saying that he must do it. Or that some of these extraordinary signs are actually an indication that one has been truly baptized with the Spirit. I think that misunderstands it as well. Okay, there's a little bit of teaching there. There's so much here. But remember the opening question. We're just trying to ask, okay, what does it mean to be spiritual? What does it mean to be truly spiritual? Well, there's a New York Times bestselling author, Thomas More, and he writes on spirituality, and he really promotes and encourages you to develop a custom spirituality. And he says, listen, 
Encourage people to draw on religion, anti-religion, whatever works for them. Every day I add another piece to the spirituality that is my own. It's built on years of, of meditation and chanting and theological reflection and the practice of therapy, all sacred activities. And is that what true spirituality is about? I think in the end, such vague sort of build-it-yourself notions of spirituality, well, they tell us far less about the divine than they do our own hedonistic impulses. The Bible says that genuine spirituality begins with Jesus as Lord. Otherwise, all we're doing is merely erecting deities in our own image, and that tells us nothing about God or the world we live in. But is it a life of quiet solitude, of, of contemplation? Does it consist of long walks, long walks pondering the universe, reflecting on all that God has made, a life that kind of looks like one long glorified personal retreat? Is that what spirituality looks like? Well, it's not that either. Because right, part of what Paul's saying is, listen, how challenging is it to think deep thoughts by oneself? How challenging is it to do that? How do sunset strolls help us impose, oppose injustice? How do they help us to live in a community with people who very well may disagree with us? Right? The individualism and the private practice of spirituality doesn't help in any way the corporate experience of our relationship with one another. True spirituality isn't res- retreating into solitude. It's, it's not even merely burying your head in a Bible. Sometimes we reduce spirituality to that, right? The practice of our own personal disciplines. And we want to know if we're spending an extra 15 minutes in the Bible or we're now praying on our knees as opposed to lying in bed, you know, half out. Well, I mean, those are Good, thing, good things to be thinking about prayer and to be reading our Bibles. But if your spirituality, if how you define your spirituality doesn't cause you to concretely honor others in the body, to love others in the body, to edify others in the body, and Paul's saying it's not true spirituality. If you're a Christian, right? If you're a Christian, it entails things like doctrine, not mere emotion. It begins with confessing Jesus is Lord. And if you're a Christian, you've got to walk away knowing God has given you a gift. He's given you a gift. And that gift is to be exercised, he says, in love for the edification of others. So how will you serve him? How will you let that redefine how you think about spirituality? How will you serve? How will you go away thinking about how you'll serve this body in love? And Ben is taking applications in the back. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. Lord, it can be hard to take so many chapters at once, and yet we see that main theme of the concern of the gift of the Spirit exercised in love for others. Father, we pray that we would increasingly be marked by such love, by such concern for others. Father, we pray that the individualism that comes so natural to us, Lord, you'd replace that by your spirit with a corporate concern, a concern for the body, a concern to put the interests of others before our own. Oh Lord, do that in us. So there'll be a powerful testimony, a great witness to the watching world that's trying to understand what's so different 
about what it means to be a Christian. Oh, Father, we pray that they'd be asking that question as they observe us in love. In Jesus' name, amen.